Good morning. Later morning. You people are my people. If I had to come to one church service, this is which one I'd come to. I'm going to do better at this one than the first. Thank you all for being here. Joe, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited about your work and thankful for your friendship and excited to worship together tonight uh, with the gathered people of God. We are this, uh, this year uh, in the book of Genesis, and we have returned to Genesis after our Advent series in John, and we're looking now at the life of Abraham, currently known as Abram. In the last two weeks, Kelly has taken us through Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, which are these mountaintop passages in which God comes in covenants with his servant Abram, establishing a special relationship with him. And this week we're going to jump back into the parts we skipped in chapters 13 and 14 to see the narrative pick up, and we're going to see that relationship unfolding and developing. I'm going to set up our our passage. We're going to read a bit from 13 and then a bit from 14. I'm going to set up the 13 part, and then we'll pause in between. I'll set up the 14 part, and then we'll move on um, and get into our sermon. So just to frame this, Abram has left his home and come to the promised land of Canaan, but there was a famine, and so he had to go down to Egypt. And the beginning of chapter 13 sees him returning after his fun adventures with telling Pharaoh that his wife was his sister and all that good story, which we are skipping. Sorry, but in in small groups, you get to look at that uh, in your small group questions. So he returns to Canaan with with Lot, his nephew, and they decide we need to split up. They've acquired a lot of possessions, and so Lot chooses the land to the east of the Jordan, so modern-day Jordan, uh, and Abram takes the land to the west. And that's where we pick up in verse 12 of chapter 13. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which is at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, pause. We're going to jump down. What we're skipping is is an account of a war between warring kings on the east side of the river. There are five kings, including Sodom and Gomorrah, who represent these cities, who are in a war with four kings from the east, led by a guy we're about to read about, whose name I did not pronounce well the first service, and I'm going to try better now. Keter Laomer. That's what I'm going to go with, and that's pretty close, okay? So Keter Laomer is a king in the basically Iraq, okay? Imagine a group of kings from Iraq who are uh, over, in a sense, these five cities in the East Jordan Valley, just east of the Dead Sea. Those five cities rebel against their Lord. The Lord comes down to take them out, and he does. There's a battle. The four kings from the east win, and they carry away all the possessions of Sodom. And that picks us up in 
verse 11 of chapter 14. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Honor. These were the allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that, this, that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Honor, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for our time this morning. Great God in heaven, we rejoice that you have called us here together by your word to hear your word proclaimed, Lord. We couldn't know you if you didn't reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you have in all of creation such that we cannot deny your existence and savingly in your holy scriptures and chiefly in Jesus Christ, our Savior, to whom they point and testify. Would your Holy Spirit now be with us? Spirit who breathed out these words be among us, speak through me clearly and boldly. Lord, would you speak in all of our hearts that we might hear and see in this story the gospel itself in Jesus Christ, our Lord in whom is our only hope, and in whose name we offer these prayers. Amen. So our story is fundamentally about the relationships that Abram has with God, and therefore fundamentally about our relationship with God. What does it look like for God's servants to relate to him? This dramatic moment upon Abram's return is going to be our focus. This scene at the end of chapter 14 where two kings come out to meet him. And he has very different reactions to them. The king of Sodom, he rejects, accepts nothing from him. And the king of Salem, Melchizedek, he offers a tenth, a tithe, and receives a feast and a blessing. To understand what's going on in that scene... We need to understand the social dynamics of the ancient Near East. And in understanding those dynamics, we're actually going to see a beautiful picture of what it looks like for us to relate to God. So that's our, that's our task this morning, to understand what's going on here at the end of this scene, and then ultimately to see how it helps us to see more clearly 
the gospel. If you're taking notes, here's a bit of an outline for you. We're going to look first at the king of Sodom and Abram's interaction with him. Then second at Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And then third, we're going to look at Jesus Christ and see how this story points us to our Savior Christ, and it does. So first, the king of Sodom. All right, so what do we know about Sodom? Well, if you have some biblical literacy, that name will be familiar to you. We're going to read more about Sodom in a few chapters in Genesis 18 and 19. It's a city on the eastern valley across the Dead Sea. So the Jordan flows into the Dead Sea, which is a big salt sea. Uh, in modern-day Jordan, on the other side is a valley, and that's where Sodom is, along with these other five cities involved in the war. We read in verse 13 of chapter 13 in our text that it was a very wicked place. That's going to be underlined for us again later in Genesis. Um, it also happens to be, though, Lot's home. He's gone and pitched his tent in Sodom. And as a result, when war comes to Sodom and Sodom is defeated, Lot, Abram's nephew, is carried away. Hence, Abram going after him to get, get the stuff back, which is what he does successfully. And so here he comes, returning from north of Damascus, back down into Canaan with the stuff, with all of the resources of Sodom that had been stolen, along with Lot and his. And king of Sodom comes out to greet him, and what does he say? Give me the persons, give me the people back, but take the goods for yourself. That sounds pretty good. He doesn't say thank you, and we'll get to that in a second, but he says, look, here's what you can do. You just, I want my people back. Uh, you take all the stuff. I'll find other stuff. Thanks, Abram. Now, Abram says no. He doesn't just say no. He says definitely no. Don't want any of it. And what we want to think about today is why. Why is Abram refusing Sodom, the king of Sodom's offer, who I'll call Sodom every now and then, but he's the king of Sodom. Um, and to know the answer to that, look at verse 22 and 23. What does Abram say? He says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So that gives us the reason right there, that last bit. Abram tells Sodom why he's saying no, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So that takes off the table one potential option, which is that Abram is concerned about the kind of moral pollution of Sodom's stuff. That might be our first read, right? Sodom's a terrible place. I don't want any of your stuff. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm going to be holy over here. That's, a, that's probably a good way to live, but that's not why Abram is doing what he's doing. In fact, he went and rescued all of Sodom's stuff. Sodom was destroyed, and he brought it back to life, and it's going to continue on into evil. No, he's concerned that the king of Sodom is going to come someday and say, I made Abram rich. And that concern is not about him, you know, going up to the king of Gomorrah and saying, you know that awesome Abram guy over there in, in the other side of the river, right? I made him. That's not what he's concerned about. He's concerned about him going to Abram and saying, hey, Abram, remember, I made you rich. Because what Sodom is really offering, what the king of Sodom is offering here is not wealth, but a relationship. A relationship in which the king of Sodom will be the provider and the protector, and Abram will be the servant who is provided for and then owes allegiance to that king. 
this would not be an unusual thing in the ancient Near East. In fact, this is exactly the cause of the war. Keterleomer was this king far away, but he was the patron king of these five cities in the eastern valley. And presumably, he was providing for them, protecting them for 13 years, it says. But then they decide, like those American colonists decide all those years ago, right? We don't want that king anymore. We're tired of sending him money. We don't need his provision in our life anymore. We're going to break that relationship. And he comes and he destroys them and he, and he wins the war. Unless they, if he hadn't taken Abram, if he hadn't taken Lot, it would have all gone would have all gone well. This society in which we find ourselves is a, is a very hierarchical society. That hierarchy is true, really, of the entire course of the Bible, up through the New Testament. To understand the Bible, we need to understand that these relationships are inherently hierarchical, and the question is going to be, in any given interaction, who's the Lord here? Who's going to be the one that provides and protects? And who then is subservient and is going to serve loyally, tithe as appropriate, but offer that allegiance to the king? We don't have much of this in our world today. The closest thing, and hopefully none of y'all have first-hand experience of this, it's okay if you do, you're in the right place, would be the mafia. The mafia actually exists as kind of an ancient social structure where you have Lords and protectors and those who are loyal to them and those lords war with other lords and then form alliances. That's, that's the picture. So if you take away all the evil stuff they do, that's socially what's going on in this context. And so Sodom, in offering for him to keep everything, is saying, hey, you come under my care. You come under my protection. I'm going to make you rich and you're going to serve me. Now, what's he doing in the middle of that. Well, he's trying to create this new relationship. And that's why Abram says no, because Abram's been paying attention to God in chapter 12. And then chapter 13, as we saw, God again makes promises to Abram. And Abram understands that his Lord, his provider, his suzerain, to use a good ancient Near East term, is God himself. And so what the king of Sodom is offering is to replace, to stand in the way of the provision of God. And so he says no. And he's faithful in refusing Sodom's offer. What does he do instead? Well, there at that same meeting is Melchizedek. And this takes us to our second point because his interaction with Melchizedek is very different, as we see. We don't know a lot about Melchizedek. Uh, that's beautifully um, played with in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but we know he's it seems he's from Jerusalem. He's the king of that city, uh, Salem, right? And importantly, and this is the main thing I want us to understand this morning, he's a priest of the Most High God. And so when Melchizedek comes out to meet Abram, and when Abram interacts with Melchizedek, he is interacting with a mediator of his Lord, okay? So Melchizedek is, in effect, in that space, God the God who promised things to him. And so he's going to interact with Melchizedek as though he were interacting with God. That's key to understanding then what happens. Because what does he do? Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, 
by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered you your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. See, the relationship that the king of Sodom was trying to create with Abram is the very relationship that Abram lives into as he interacts with Melchizedek. And it's the very interaction that Melchizedek lives into. What, what I want us to see as we think about this interaction between Melchizedek and Abram is they're both playing their role perfectly in this suzerain-vassal relationship, this superior provider, and this one who is cared for and who is loyal. Look at what happens. Before, before Abram does anything, what does Melchizedek do? Abram's hot and sweaty. He chased guys up to Damascus. That's a long way. Okay, He's coming back. Melchizedek is there, this representative of his great provider, Lord, and he brings out a feast. That's what we see. Bread and wine is, is not just bread and wine, it's a feast. That's what's being described here in that phrase. So Abram coming off the battlefield is met by his provider with a feast. And then what does he do? He blesses him. He pronounces blessing on Abram, and he in that blessing, he interprets rightly what just happened. There's an interesting thing about this king of Sodom that's funny in this whole thing, and he's kind of like Satan, and he actually, there is some connection there, because Sodom should be, like, falling on his face, saying, Abram, I am your servant forever. You just saved my city. And instead, he tries to twist it and make Abram into his. But Melchizedek gets it right. He says, God is the possessor of heaven and earth, and he just delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek, in caring for Abram and blessing Abram, is fulfilling his role in that relationship. He's not here to collect. He ends up with a tithe, but we need to see that. In the way Melchizedek acts towards Abram, he is here as the provider and the caregiver, as the Lord, as the blesser. He doesn't show up and say, Abram, good job, give me my 10%. He shows up and says, Abram, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to bless you. Now, Abram's response then, what? Is to give him this tithe, a tenth of all of the spoils. His, his response is worship. His response is devotion and gift, which was appropriate for that relationship. That's what those who are cared for do. And so you have both of these men, one representing God himself, playing out what it looks like for God to be the suzerain Lord and for us to be the vassal who is cared for. Y'all see that? That's beautiful. And what I want to do for just a minute is convince you that's beautiful. But I know that's hard for us to get because in our mind as 21st century Americans, any sort of hierarchical relationship is necessarily suspect. The idea that you or I could be happy and blessed in a subservient role makes us break out in hives. That seems like that can't be the case. The best slight glimmer of this, though, and I want to work with this and build it up so that you can see, at least maybe taste slightly, the beauty of not being the king of the world, is this. It's, it's the relationship between parents and children, right? Um, children and parents, are, it's a hierarchical relationship. It just is. 
right? Those of you who have little kids, you know this. Um, they don't bring a lot to the table uh, except needs, right? And you bring a lot to them. That's, that's the deal, right? We're going to have baptisms next week. Parents are going to take vows to do lots of things for their kids. The kids don't take any vows. They just sit there, right? And, and um, hopefully don't cry. And it's fine if they do because you'll think it's cute. Um, parents and children. But, but here's what's... It's great to be a kid. I, as a parent, I wish I was a kid sometimes. But you know as you grow into being an adult? And some of us have lost our parents. Some of us have parents who aren't that... Who aren't the way I'm about to describe, okay? And that's, that's sad, and we'll talk about that in a second. But college students, y'all were just home for, for a break, right? You've been really roughing it here at, at UVA, like fending for yourself, occasionally doing laundry, um, finding time to eat, uh, m- maybe changing your sheets. Guys, do y'all ever change your sheets? You should, <laughs> you should change your sheets. I didn't know that till sophomore year. Um, <laughs> But then you go home, right? And you walk in that door, and there might be some complicated things about home, but the thing about home that's wonderful is that you've got a mom and a dad there, hopefully, and your shoulders, which have been tense as you've tried to just make it through life, right, they settle just a little bit. Because mom's going to make dinner, somebody's going to do the laundry, and you're going to be okay. You don't have to worry about all the things that you did worry about when you were here to the extent you worried about them. Now, fast forward, young parents uh, out there, um, when a good grandmother comes over, right, and some of y'all are good, most of y'all are, I know, in this room, some, some aren't as good, right, when a good grandma comes over, uh, or when you go to your parents' house with your kids, right, at its best, that same thing still happens, right? You've been, you've been suzerain lord of your family, and that's exhausting, but then grandma shows up, or you go home, and you can, you can just relax for just a second. Someone's going to take care of you. They might even take care of your kids. And you can, you can sort of squeeze back into being a kid again. And there's a beauty in that that we long for. And even if we've lost our parents or our parents are a mess and they don't provide that, even in our grief, we see that we want that, right? That's the shade of a picture of what it looks like to be the vassal before a gracious, generous Lord. Y'all see that? When Abram offers a tithe to the Lord, he's not paying for dinner, and he's not paying for the right to keep getting dinner. Abram is a little boy crawling into his daddy's lap and saying, this is who I am. I am yours. All that I just got was from you. I'm giving it back to you. It's an acknowledgement of that relationship. That's a beautiful thing. And I hope our imagination can move towards seeing that as beautiful because everything in our culture says it's not. And that's not just 21st century. That's back to 1776 and the guy who lived on the hill over there, right? Um, We need to see that we were made to be small in a relationship with someone else who was big. It's beautiful to be in that place. If you're here this morning and you're not sure about the gospel and this Jesus thing, I'm so glad you're here. Um, I want to invite you to consider making yourself small before a mighty God who will care for you. To let your shoulders down. 
and let God care for you. To give up being the Lord of your life and let someone else do that. It is, in fact, a beautiful thing. Much of our lives, so many of our days and thoughts and wakeless anxieties in the middle of the night are spent looking for one of two things. We're looking for security and we're looking for meaning. How can I protect what I need to protect and how can I find purpose and meaning in this world? And we don't have those things. It looks like anxiety and despair. If you want meaning and you want security, put yourself beneath a mighty God who will protect you and provide for you and who then in your worship of him gives you all that you need in your life. You want to know what to do? Offer your life to the Lord who cares for you. Okay, Christian, how you doing? Are you, you faithful to your suzerain Lord? Who, who are those other kings in your life who come promising blessing in exchange for your obedience, for your allegiance, for something? And how many of them do you say yes to? I'll take that. Yeah, I, I got you. Who are you serving in your life? Who's offering what God offers and you're taking them up on it instead of trusting the Lord? God, brothers and sisters, delights to be your provider. He delights for you to be small and for him to be big. Would you let him do that? Now, as we read the story of Abram, I hope you got a glimmer of, oh, that could be cool and beautiful. But if we're honest, it's also can be a bit discouraging. Because I do swear allegiance to lots of other kings, right? For these relationships to work in the ancient Near East, the both sides had to do their thing. It was massively unequal obligations, but they were there. Which is why Ketileomer came and crushed Sodom and Gomorrah. Because they weren't keeping their end of the bargain. And you and I don't keep our end of the bargain. So what do we do with that? That takes us to the gospel, full expression of it. And I was going to say full stop, that doesn't make sense. It, it takes us to the fullness of the gospel here. And, and this is where I want to close. And I'm not going to hide the ball here. Uh, at Trinity, we believe when we come to read this half of the Bible over here, uh, that we're going to find Jesus. And we believe that because Christ told us that he's there. And that's I love preaching the Old Testament because we get to see it. And, 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 and so where is he here in this story? Where do we see Jesus Christ in the story of Abram before Melchizedek and the king of Sodom? There's an easy Bible study answer that's beautifully true, which is that he's Melchizedek. Right? And we see that in Hebrews chapter 7 where the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. In that context, he's using it to show the superiority of Christ's priesthood over Aaron's priesthood, where Aaron here is literally, in a sense, in Abram's loins, tithing to Melchizedek, who Christ comes from. But we also see it in the nature of Melchizedek in this text, right? He comes and brings a feast on behalf of Father, the glorious Father, the gracious Father, Right? And that's what Jesus does. He's a mediator, a priest who comes to us with blessing and provision. All right. But here's what I want to suggest 
that we add to that. Don't just go for the easy Hebrews 7 answer, for those of you who knew it. If you're looking for yourself in this story, you are not Abram. Abram is faithful. You and I are Lot. And if we look at Lot, it's a lot more familiar, okay? What does Lot do? Lot has this relationship through his uncle with the Lord. He's heard these promises. But he goes and makes his tent and pitches his tent where? At Sodom. He does exactly the thing that Abram refuses to do, right? And we're going to see he goes back there after this, which is mind-blowing and yet completely understandable if we understand how we work as people. He goes and says, I'm going to put my lot with Sodom. Sodom becomes his protector. And how did, what, is, what are the consequences of that? Well, Sodom's a bad protector, and he ends up in prison, being carried away into exile north of Damascus. That's you and me. Foolish, faithless, and suffering the consequences of it. So who's Abraham? Who's Abram here? Well, Abram's Jesus, guys. Who comes, hears about his silly nephew, right, and chases him down and defeats the enemy and carries us back and then makes a faithful offering to God himself. It's not clear in this text, but it's almost certainly the case that Lot is there for dinner. Melchizedek brings out this feast, and Lot, scoundrel, is there with Abram, enjoying the feast. Why? Because Abram has been a faithful servant of the Most High God. That is where we are in this story, brothers and sisters. You are Lot, and yet we have an uncle, indeed an older brother, who is faithful on our behalf and who takes us to the feast. Jesus is Abram, and he is Melchizedek all at once. This is the gospel of grace, brothers and sisters. It's even better than that suzerain vassal relationship. It's God both sides of the relationship bringing you in with us praise god for his glorious grace let's pray father in heaven we rejoice that you are our suzerain lord and we thank you that our faithless performance as vassals is covered over by our faithful older brother jesus God, would you overwhelm us with this reality and would you welcome us into the shadow of your wings, into your bosom? Lord, I pray for all of us in this room that our hearts would be drawn to give up making our own way and to call out to you, our Father, our Daddy, who cares for us and our needs. Lord, we need you every hour. Oh, we need you. Bless us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.